0: So we're going to start um, last week, where we left off last week. Last week we talked about the Beatitudes. We were in uh, Matthew five, and we talked about this uh this list of of things that Jesus said would make us happy. "Makarios" was the Greek word. Uh, a lot of translations say "blessed are those," but that word is often translated "happy are those" in the New Testament. That "makarios" um, is is. Translated happy a lot of times, and so it's kind of this fun moment where Jesus is preaching probably his most foundational sermon um, in all of the Scripture, and he starts off with this: "Hey, go make yourself happy. Like, go you go do you. Like, uh, seek your happiness. You know, take care of yourself. Look after number one first. This moment of of happiness, and then he kind of throws a twist on it. Except." Here's how happiness happens. Like it's not, so he starts with this message that almost sounds like the world's message of happiness is what matters, like your own happiness, seek your own happiness. And then he twists it and he's like, except, here's how happiness really looks. Here are the things that bring true happiness. Here are the things that really feed the human soul, the way you're wired, the way God made you. And it's a weird list because none of it Brings the kind of happiness we generally think we're after. None of it brings the kind of happiness we generally think we want. This is not the road to wealth. This is not the road to fame. This is not the road to popularity. This is not the road to easy living. He's like, the people who are truly happy are the people who have a deep spiritual need and they know it. The people who are truly happy are those who mourn. Not the ones who put on the fake smile... And I'm good, I'm blessed, everything's good. God, yeah. But the ones who know they're hurting on the inside and know how to access that and share it. And know how to go... I mean, if you read one-third of the Psalms are what we call lament Psalms. These are the people who, who were upset with what was going on. They didn't like what was happening in their life and they had no trouble talking to God about it. They had no trouble saying... I mean, Jesus on the cross sings Psalms 22. He's hanging there and he goes, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalms 22. We feel like you know, Jesus was crying this out. But he turned to one of those psalms, one of those lament psalms that he had probably read and sang a thousand times. He said, this is the moment that I sing that. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The ancient rabbis just say the, the, the Torah is how God speaks to us. The psalms are how God wants us to speak to Him. If that's true... Then one third of them are people who are not at all happy with what's happening. They're not at all happy with God, and they turn to God about it. We have this we have this weird thing in our culture where people who don't believe in God have this tendency to go, "If your God is so real, why is there so much evil in the world? Why do so many terrible things happen?" And we feel like it's our job to like answer that. Well, I mean, you have to understand, God knows more than we do. You know, I've got so my kids are wrestling with that right now, and. And you feel this intense pressure to answer that question, you know. Well, you have to understand, you know, that God, you know, is, His thoughts are above our thoughts and His ways are above our ways. And and we feel the pressure to answer. What I love is in the Bible, it was His closest followers that did that. Several of the prophets are like, God, if you're so awesome, why is our nation a mess? Why is everything falling apart? It wasn't seen as a sign of like rebellion or doubt that these people did this. It was seen as a sign of faith. That they turned to God with those big hard questions. That they went to God and said, God, I don't understand this at all. This doesn't make sense at all. This is, this is frustrating. If you're there and you're so amazing, why is this happening? It was, it was the deep followers of God that asked those questions. So Jesus takes this list. He's like, blessed are those who mourn and know how to, and know how to do that. Blessed are those who, who seek peace, who, who don't Dive online and 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 scream at the other side, and who don't do everything they can to stir up the animosity, but the ones who 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 are strong to their convictions, because he says, Bless are those who seek after righteousness, strong about their convictions, but choose to 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 a path of peace to get there." And so he takes this list that that doesn't look like anything that we would call. Uh, the road to blessing. Like when we think of blessing, like you know, I'm going to pray and God's going to pour down financial blessings. He's going to pour down all these amazing things. And Jesus does not give that kind of list. So He says, seek your happiness. Go after your happiness. But your happiness is going to look different. Like true happiness is going to look different than you think. And most of us who have chased the things that we think will make us happy don't find the happiness. Even if we find the things, we don't find it. We talked last week about how uh, the World Health Organization did a huge study to see if you could actually buy happiness, to see if giving people more resources would actually make them more happy. They came up with this thing they called the happiness quotient, a way to measure happiness and satisfaction. And, and they found that for some people it did. If you were below what you needed to live, if you didn't have enough to survive, yes, more resources made you happy getting you up to the level of where now you have enough to survive did bring more happiness. And once you crossed that threshold, it was almost inverse. The more you had, the less happy you got. America was the absolute worst. The more you have in America, the the least happy you tend to be. And yet most of us look at somebody with more than us, if I could just have that much, if I just didn't have to work so hard, if I could just have a little bit more, if I could just be in a little bit better place, I'd be happy. The studies don't show that. It shows the other way. So Jesus... Taps into this thing that I think is fun that psychology is just now proving, and he did it two thousand years ago. He's like, if you want the road to true happiness, if you want the road to true peace, if you really want your soul to thrive, here's how you do that. And it's a list that we're not used to. So if you missed that, jump in last week. But but um, but I was wrestling with this because uh, because as I was praying for Lena yesterday, my soul was not happy. I was I was torn up, and I, I was. I was working on my deck and I was quiet and I didn't really have anything in my ear. Normally I've got some music or something in my ear and I'd run my sermon three or four times and and so I'm just working in silence and I was like, God, uh, what do we do in this moment? What do we do? And I felt like God took me to the book of Ruth. So if you, if you're in your Bible, you may want to go to Ruth. We're going to bounce around here a little bit, but, but I, I went to this story of these two women who had uh, survived disaster um, if you don't know the story of Ruth very well, Ruth, uh, Naomi, um, and her husband Elimelech were um, uh, had to move away from their home, Bethlehem, because of a drought. There was no money, there's no jobs, there's nothing going on. It was hard times, and so they moved out. They moved to Moab. They went to a different country, you know, chasing work, chasing um, better circumstances. And we've all been there, you know, when 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 it's you have to change situations um, to get. Uh, better circumstances and so they did that they moved and and unfortunately while they were in Moab Elimelech dies um, and they had two sons and the, the two sons had married Moabite women and so now the two sons are in charge and and about 10 years in uh, the two sons die and so now it's Naomi and her uh, and her two daughters-in-law um, stuck in Moab and so what uh happens is is Naomi gets a word that there the famine is over in her home country and it's kind of a powerful moment um, because uh uh she was from Bethlehem which is this um, city the the name Bethlehem means house of bread um, which like, just makes me hungry to hear that word. Like, you ever been close to a bakery or, or like a, and like you can just smell that fr- there's no smell on earth. If heaven does not smell like fresh baked bread, I will, there will be a little bit of disappointment deep in my soul that it wasn't quite all it could have been. Um, so I'm hoping heaven is, smells like fresh baked bread, but Bethlehem means house of bread. And, uh, and so, Naomi gets this word that there's bread again in the house of bread, um, which is also kind of cool because you know Jesus uh, was born in Bethlehem as the bread of life, um, which is kind of awesome. Uh, just in in terms of those fun little uh, details and twists that the scripture is packed with. So Jesus, the bread of life, is born um, in bread, and and I think this is powerful. Carl said something to me. Uh, a couple weeks ago that I just cannot get out of, out of my head. Um, he said, if times keep getting tougher, the churches are going to fill up. Um, you know, cause we're, we're in this weird time where, um, COVID, you know, kind of rewrote the script. You know, almost every church on the planet's online now. Oh, fam, I love you. I love you're out there, that you're out there. I love you're with us. Um, we never planned on going online. We never planned on being that kind of church, but, you know, COVID made us all, you know, do weird things. And so we have a, a lot of people fell out of the habit of going to church. It's so much easier now just to click it on TV and, and watch it that way. And, and it's kind of rewritten the words. And, 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 uh, Carl and I were talking about that a little frustrated about it the other day. And Carl's like, if things keep getting tougher, the churches are going to fill up. Um, and I thought about that, um, as I was thinking about Naomi and Ruth, thinking about hearing, you know, you leave what you're used to, you leave your home, you leave, you know, let's say you leave church and you get to a foreign place and, and the world falls apart. And uh, and it happened for Naomi and Ruth. The world fell apart. They lost Elimelech. They lost uh, Naomi's two sons. And and you're out there and the world's a disaster and you hear that there's bread back in the house of God. That there's something back there that you need. And my prayer is that we come to a place where where the Word starts to get out That there's bread again in the house of God. That there is something here that people need. There is something here that is good for us. And as the world gets rougher and the world falls apart and as, and as people, um, you know, we're, we're in a time where there's no easy road out of our, our current financial situation in our, in our country. We've been here before. We know what it takes to get out of this kind of mess and it's a long road. And people are gonna hit tough times. And they have to hear that there's bread again in the house of God. That there, that there's a place that, that, that cares for you and takes care of you and loves you and, uh, and, and where there's, uh, community and help and, and the presence of God above all else. And so my prayer is like Naomi and Ruth heard this message that there's bread again in the house of God. I pray that that's us. I pray that, that, that word gets out and people start to hear that there's bread again in the house of God. But, um, but, uh, but Naomi and Ruth, uh, well, Naomi turns to her two daughter-in-laws because she knows I'm going home. There's, there's bread again in the house of God. I'm going back to Bethlehem. And it seems crazy to her that her, her two daughters-in-law would come with her. And so she tells them um, that they can go home. She was like, you know, it's a terrible situation. They're both widows. And Naomi is like, uh, you know, I've I got no more sons for you. Like, and so you know my fate. I'm, I, I basically die alone. Why would you come do that with me? Uh, and they both cried and they didn't want to do that, um, but Orpa, the other one, um, agreed. And so Naomi turns to Ruth and she's like, go home, you know, daughter. This is crazy. And Ruth says this thing in, uh, in, uh, Ruth 1-6, if you want to join me there. Uh, it's one of my favorite passages of scripture. Uh, in fact, usually when I do weddings, I, I almost always try to talk the bride and groom into using this as their vows because it's so gorgeous. Um, but we're going to be in Ruth 1.6 and I am now jumping around my Bible so this is not the way we normally do it but it says then Naomi uh, oh this is where we started heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed His people in Judah by giving them good crops again so Naomi and her daughter-in-laws got ready to leave Moab for their homeland so we're going to jump down um, she gives her big thing uh, to her daughter-in-law. Why would you stay with me? This doesn't make any sense. Uh, verse 16 is actually where we're going to be. It says, But Ruth replied, Don't ask me to leave you or turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. So Ruth gives this awesome speech. It's one of the most beautiful speeches in Scripture that I am not going to leave you. Nothing um, uh, could separate us. She makes this amazing vow and Naomi buys it. So you go back and we find out later that this moment serves Naomi. That rumor of this moment made it all the way back to Israel. That that uh, Ruth's dedication and devotion to her mother-in-law Preceded her; it built into her reputation. So this is a this is a big moment. And they get back. So they get back to the people of God. They they get back to uh, Bethlehem where they were from. And uh, and Naomi, we get to see into her soul um, just a little bit. If you want to jump down with me to verse nineteen, it says, "So the two of them continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is this Naomi?" The women asked. So they've missed her. They're excited to see her. Um, and obviously 10 years has passed. We all look a little different 10 years later. Um, and so they're asking the question, is this Naomi? Is this the same woman? And it says, don't call me Naomi, she responded. Uh, Instead, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made uh, life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer, and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me. So Naomi returned to Moab, from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law Ruth, the young Moabite woman. Uh, they arrived in the late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. Uh, the name Naomi means pleasant. Um, and so they come in, they're like, is this Naomi? Is this pleasant? Is this the sweet one? And she said, no, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Call me bitter. And I think there's a lesson here, I think a, like a tragic Lesson that, that Naomi and, and Ruth become this juxtaposition because Naomi, they've both suffered. They've both lost, they're both widows. They both lost their husband. Now granted, Naomi's also lost two sons, but they're both in this place of suffering and Naomi makes this kind of tragic shift where no longer is she Naomi who has suffered. She has now embraced suffering as her, as her identity. She's renamed herself in the place of of suffering. It's not just something she's gone through. It's something she is. And that's a, that's a scary moment for Naomi to not just say, I have a story. I have a path I've been through. I have a journey I have traveled. I have pain I have endured. I have things that I have suffered. She has now embraced the fact that she is suffering. I am bitter. I am. And that's the danger of bitterness. It's not that, that you've gone through anything different. It's that you decided to park there. You've decided to stay there and go, this is who I am. I am bitter. I am suffering. I am pain. And, and that's a scary place to be. It's a scary, scary place to be. And so, what, uh, uh, it, it leaves this little tag on the end that they were at the barley, uh, harvest. That's when they got there. And so in chapter two, um, Naomi makes this shift. And, and this is what I really, um, wanted to cling to. This morning because Naomi in, in Israel, they had these rules. It was kind of their welfare system um, where in it, when you would harvest a field, um, you were supposed to kind of leave the edges like don't don't go all the way to the edges. And if something falls off the wagon, uh, don't pick it up, just kind of leave it. And it gave uh, it left some crops in the field, a few crops in the field where uh, three groups of people, uh, widows. People who were absolutely destitute and foreigners who were just passing through could could go into a field and pick the edges, pick the stuff that was dropped um, and get a meal. You could get some food if you uh, if you went and kind of did the second pass over over a field. Most farmers would bring their whole harvest team through a field and then they'd hire a day laborer to maybe go get them another to make the second pass and go give them a uh you know, and and usually what it would be is you know, I'll split whatever you get with you. The farmer would say, you know, and and so the day laborer would get half of whatever he found or or whatever. But God was like, we're not going to do that in Israel. In Israel, we're going to leave all that. Like you can get by on the first pass. Leave the rest for the people who really really need it. And it became kind of the welfare system. And and so I think uh, Ruth heard about this, and Ruth was like, um, hey. We're home, but we need food. I'm going to go glean in the fields if that's okay. And and uh, and of course, Naomi says, yes, let her go out in the field. So Ruth finds the nearest barley field. And this is kind of where God is not mentioned in the book of Ruth, which is awesome, except for the fact that God is like all through the book of Ruth behind the scenes, which I think is the way it usually happens in our life, like usually, what we're looking for is those big visible moments, and it's not till we get down the road a little bit and we look back, we're like, "Oh my gosh, God was there all along." He was, you know, the old footprints thing. I could get cheesy and read that, but you know the thing, you know, where where uh, you look back and realize God had been in the story all along. So it, it even says there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz. He was a relative of Naomi's husband Elimelech, uh, and so there's this guy. Named Boaz, who's got a field. And, and Ruth has no idea who Boaz is. Has no idea how the relations work. It's later in the book that, that Naomi is like, hey, where were you at today? And Ruth is like, oh, this guy named Boaz. And Naomi's like, okay, so that's kind of important, because he's like a family redeemer. They have these things called family redeemers, where, where somebody who's close enough in family can, can like purchase back their relative stuff which it would have included providing for Naomi providing for Ruth like and and so Naomi has no idea where Ruth has gone Ruth has no idea how this system even works or who Boaz is she just goes to the nearest field don't you love coincidences like coincidences are god in in costume i think coincidences are god in camouflage you know where where uh, i love a great coincidence like there's nothing better than that moment where uh, where things just unfold, and you're like, Haha, I couldn't have scripted that any better, you know. And at the time, you know, it just falls in your lap. You have no clue. But then you look back, and you're like, God was so in all of that. Well, that's what happens. She lands of all the barley fields, you know, of all the bars and all the or whatever that old line is, of all the barley fields and all of Israel, you know, for her to land in. She lands in Boaz's. Naomi doesn't know it. Ruth doesn't know it. Boaz barely knows it. And so it says, one day Ruth, um, the Moabite, I'm in verse 2 if you're following, said to Naomi, let me go and harvest the fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone kind enough to let me do it. And Naomi replied, uh, all right, go ahead. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. And it happened, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz. It happened. I love that. Uh, it just happened. Um, that she was working in a field belonging to Boaz. The relative of the... Uh, of her father-in-law, Elimelech. While she was there, Boaz arrived in Bethlehem to greet his harvesters. Lord be with you, he said. Uh, the Lord bless you, the harvesters replied. That's, that's just good writing. you got to have some dialogue. Um, then Boaz asked his foreman, who is that young woman over there? I love that. Hey, hey. Um, who is that young woman over there? Who uh, who does she belong to? Um, the foreman replied, she's a young woman from Moab who came with Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvester. uh has been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes to rest in the shelter. Boaz went over and said to Naomi, hey girl, no, that's not what he said. Um, Listen, my daughter, stay right here with us um, when you gather grain. Don't go to any other field. Stay right behind the young uh, women working in the field. See which part of the field they're harvesting and follow them. I've warned the young men not to treat you roughly. And when you're thirsty, help yourself to the water they have drawn from the well. Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. Um, What have I done to deserve such kindness, she asked. I'm a foreigner. He said, yes, I know, but I also know about everything you've done for your mother-in-law. This is where I say her reputation of that moment she committed herself to Naomi kind of preceded her. Um, Since the death of your husband... I've heard how you left your father and mother in your own land to come here um, among complete strangers. May the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have taken refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. And so Naomi um, finds like her place, finds this this home here. Um, and uh, and this is the moment that that I couldn't let go of last night because here you have you have this weird mixture of of. Nobody gleans happy. Like you don't <laughs> the reason you're gleaning is because you're in a bad situation. Chances are Naomi is still mourning the death of her husband. Chances are I mean uh, Ruth. Chances are Ruth is is feeling alone and sad away from her parents. You don't glean because everything's going your way. Naomi is in a horrible situation. You know, I've known you know uh, people that that have had to be on the welfare system, and and it's really taken care of them. And and I know people who have who have uh, used that and, and been blessed. Uh, and the the only bummer is that it, there's something about having to take help that that hurts us a little bit. And and so here you've got Naomi in this humbling situation. You've got Naomi in this grieving situation. You've got Naomi in this heartbroken. Uh, painful situation. And in the midst of that, she's finding blessing. In the midst of that, she's meeting Boaz. In the midst of that, she's being taken care of. And it's this bizarre, and as I was meditating on it, I was like, Naomi is, is a walking example of the Beatitudes. She's mourning. Blessed are those who mourn, whose hearts are broken. She's humble. She's having to, to rely on on the, the good graces of somebody else. She's, she's uh, seeking after justice and peace by committing herself to her mother-in-law. Naomi is a walking beatitude. And in the midst of all of that stuff that we wouldn't think brings happiness, she not only finds a place in this barley field where she can be taken care of and where she can provide for her and her mother-in-law, but she meets Boaz, who I'm not going to get through the whole story, but who, who becomes her husband later. Spoiler alert. And, and they bear a child together. And that child becomes the, like the grandfather of King David who becomes the progenitor to Jesus who saves the world. And it all starts in the middle of this, of this horrible, horrible moment. This is a bad time. This is not a good time. Like we, we, we have a tendency to, to, to read through Ruth and, and read through this process of gleaning like it's an awesome thing. This is not a good thing. This is the bad time. And she's on bottom. And and as I was thinking on it, I was, I was captured by this idea of gleaning. This idea of going through an empty field going through a barren field, going through a field that's already been picked over and finding what is still good. Finding what is still useful. And this is what captured me by this yesterday when I was working on my deck and I was working and I was heartbroken and I was struggling and I was... I was trying to pray and I was finding it hard to pray. And I was like, God, how am I supposed to stand up in front of people and encourage them when I, I can't even do it? And I felt like Ruth. And I was like, and I can picture standing in this big... <laughs> I'm going to get it under control. Whew. Give me a second. Coffee will do the trick. I don't want to just stand up here and look like an idiot. If anybody says too late, I'm walking out. No. And I'm picturing standing this big empty field. And God going, There's something good. Grab that one. There's something good. Grab that one. I know it looks empty, but it's not. There's something good. Grab that one and there's something good. Grab that one. And I realized that gratitude is just gleaning. Gratitude is standing in a broken world and saying it hasn't all been picked over yet. There is still good. There are still people who love me. There is still community. There is still blessing. There is still good to hold on to. And I stood there thinking, Ruth is, is, isn't just an example of how you can wind up in the right place at the right time and good things can happen. Ruth is an example of how gratitude works. It's going, everything is falling apart. This field is empty. There's nothing good. It's already been picked over. And going, no, 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 I can get some good out of it. I can find something good out of it. I can, I can, I can find something to sustain me. In this, one ear at a time. Gleaning, I think, is how gratitude works. So ultimately, gleaning is a process of finding what we've missed. It's a process of choosing to find the good. We're kind of talking through the Sermon on the Mount last week, and I think we're going to get back there. Next week, but Jesus has this really uh, popular statement that we talk about all the time. He says, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. And then he says this thing that frustrates me because everyone who seeks finds. Everyone who asks, it's given. Everyone who knocks, it's open to him. And that's always frustrating because I feel like there's been an awful lot of things I've I've asked for that I haven't gotten and a lot of things I've seeked that I haven't found and and it can be frustrating. But I was thinking about that in terms of gleaning, in terms of Ruth in this big empty field and Jesus saying, uh, everyone who seeks, finds. Everyone who seeks, finds. I sat there last night mulling that over as I was putting deck boards on my deck and I was like, everybody who seeks, finds. Because I've been... Pounding heaven. And, and in the back of my head has been like, God, you said if we ask, you would answer. You said if we ask, you would answer. You said if we seek, you'd find. Something pounded heaven with that. And it dawned on me, as I was thinking about it in terms of gleaning, that, that if we seek negativity, we will find it. If we seek pain, we will find it. If if we seek evil, if, 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 you, if you want to get mad, it will take you three seconds on Facebook. Go find it. Everyone who seeks, finds. If you want to get frustrated, pull up your news app. Because everyone who seeks, finds. If you want to fight, I can tell you how to get there in about two swipes of your thumb. And everyone who seeks finds. And I thought about Ruth in this barren situation in her life, in this barren field, seeking sustenance, seeking food, seeking life. And I thought, everyone who seeks finds. And I thought about it in terms of gratitude. I thought about it in terms of of... Of finding something good in barrenness, and I hear God saying, everyone who seeks finds. And one of the toughest things about really the last couple of years, uh, in our church really is, is it feels like we're a home for wayward souls, like we're a home full of people who are going through really tough times. And I love that we come here and, and cry together and, and lean on each other and share our frustrations together because everyone who seeks finds. And if you come seeking connection, you come seeking something to be grateful for, and you come seeking love, and you come seeking your people, everyone who seeks finds. Ruth stood in this big, empty, barren field looking for something good. And, and she found it. She found it everyone who seeks, finds. So I want to ask the question today, what are you seeking for? What are you looking for? If you're looking to be sad, everyone who seeks, finds. If you're looking to be frustrated, if you're looking to be angry, everyone who seeks, finds. If you're looking for bad stuff in this church, I can give you a list. If you've been hurt by church and, and you kind of walk into church going, you know, oh, this is, you know, probably going to be like every other, yeah, you're going to find some, I can, I can, I can give you a list. If you come in seeking that, you'll find. If you come in seeking people and seeking connection, if you come in seeking a word from God and you come in seeking a place where you can experience the presence of God in worship, I think you'll find it. I think you tend to find what you seek for. Story girls, if you're looking, if you've, if you've been hurt by people, I know you guys are finishing this book up, if you've been hurt by people and you go into every relationship looking for someone to abandon you and someone to hurt you, and I think you'll find it. And if you come looking for someone to connect to and share your life with and share your heart with, I think you'll find it. It's with our spouses and our kids. If you're looking for your spouse's weak spots, it does not take long to find them. But if you're looking for the good, if you're looking for something to to compliment something to praise, I think you'll find it. It's the same with our kids, it's the same with our coworkers. I think we it it, it matters what we seek for. But the best news of all, I think is 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 the fact that we have this there's this really confusing verse in Romans where where Paul says uh, he's actually quoting uh, he's actually quoting a psalm, but let's look at uh, Romans three if you want to go with me, um, and verse nine. Paul says, "Well then, should we conclude that the Jew- uh, actually we're going to script down? I got the uh, verse starting in verse ten. As the scripture says, no one is righteous, no not one." No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. No one is seeking God. Which is weird because we're told to seek God all the time. Like all of us are told to, you know, seek God. There's verses that tell us to seek God. We feel like we're seeking God. We feel like we God, we pray to God, God, I just want your will. I just want to know what you want from me. God, I just want to to experience you. We feel like we're seeking God all the time. Paul comes out and says, No one is seeking God. No one is actually seeking God. And it's it's kind of theologically bizarre. Um, but I think the beauty of that is, uh, there are multiple verses where it says, I mean, Jesus has a big one in John when he's talking to the, to the woman at the well and, and they're wrestling about how you're supposed to worship God. They're like, hey, we say that we're supposed to worship God on this mountain. You guys say it's supposed to be in Jerusalem. How do we know who's right? And, and Jesus says, here's the deal. God is seeking worshipers anywhere. He's seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And there's all kinds of other verses that says God is seeking for those who love Him. And even though we don't always seek God, God seeks us and everyone who seeks finds, He says. Everyone who seeks finds. We used, I used to play <laughs> hide and seek with my kids um, in the house. My older boys still tell it like it, like, Like they were watching a horror movie or something because I would hide somewhere and then when they'd find me I would blah, like I would scare them. And so it was, so I'd be the one hiding, they'd be the one seeking, but they'd be like, dad I'm gonna open the closet, if you're in there please don't jump out and scare me. Like, they got to where they didn't want to find me, like they was like, and there was a couple times, like, I'm in the closet, laugh, like, trying not to laugh out loud. And they're like, I'm not going to open the door. You open the door. I'm not going to open the door. You open the door. And, like, my older boys, like, when they talk about playing hide and seek with me, they're like, that was the scariest thing we'd ever do. Like, we knew no matter where you were, we were going to, you know, get the crud scared out of us. And and I was thinking about that, thinking about jumping out of my kids. And, and I think sometimes we're that way with with God. Sometimes we, we feel like we want to seek Him, but we're afraid of what He might say. We're afraid of what He might do. We're afraid of what He might ask us to change. We're afraid of what He might want from us. And so we, we stand looking at the door going, I'm not going to open it. Like I kind of want to open it. I kind of want to see. I kind of want to touch God. I kind of want to be close to God. But what if it's hard? What if He asks me to do something? What if He jumps out and scares me? I'm not going to open it. I'm not going to open the door. And in Revelation, John says, there's one who stands at the door and knocks. There's one who is seeking us. There's one who's looking for us. There's one who's trying to find us. And everyone who seeks, finds. And John was like, just open the door. Just open the door. And Revelation says, he'll come in and eat with you. He'll come in and be with you. Because he's seeking you. He's seeking you. The beauty of the of the story of the book of Ruth is, is Ruth goes into this empty field that's already been picked over. Most people would drive by that field and say, That one is done. That one is finished. There's nothing there. There's nothing to be grateful for. There's nothing to to, to value in that anymore. And Ruth goes in to glean. She goes in looking for goodness. She goes in seeking something good in that barren field. And what she finds is everything. She finds Boaz. Boaz is one of the, one of the huge types in the Old Testament of Jesus, this family redeemer that comes in to save the, really the day and the entire you know, uh, messianic heritage. You know, he comes in as this Jesus figure to save. And so she goes in looking for some gratitude. She goes in looking for something good in a barren field, and she finds she opens that door and finds her Savior, who turns out had always been looking for her. And I think that's our same story. We turn to Jesus. We think we're turning to Jesus. We look for anything good. If we will if we will turn our hearts to glean something to be grateful for, something to be gratitude, to have gratitude about, we tend to find everything. If we're seeking God, it's only because He was seeking us first. He was standing at the door and knocking. So how do we respond to this? Our world is a picked over mess. It really is. I mean, personally, we've got a lot going on. Like in our church we've got people hurting. We've got people who are struggling. If you go outside of our church it's not much better. We're standing in a barren barley field or at least that's what it looks like. And I think God is asking us to look for something good, to to learn how to glean gratitude, to learn how to to I mean God has been has been I've started a gratitude journal where I'm just trying to come up with things to be grateful for. Every single day, and I kinda of suck at it. I forget a lot, and I mean once I sit down and do it, I'm pretty good at coming up with things to be grateful for, but I forget to. And I've noticed that when I don't take my time to come up with a few things I'm grateful for, it changes everything. I mean the, 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 the thing of gleaning is it's, it's the difference, for Ruth, it's the difference between starvation and life. I don't think it's any different for us. I I, I think if we don't start looking for good, if we don't start looking for something to be grateful for, if we don't start, you know, turning off social media every once in a while, or, or just focus on the puppy posts, like skip everything else, just go for the puppies. You know, if we don't look for something good, we will starve. We will starve. If we don't learn to glean in this world, we will starve. And so the way I would love to respond to this message is, is maybe even as we're taking communion, get out your phone, whatever you take notes on. Five things. Start with five things I'm grateful for. Five things that, that spark gratitude. And if it's hard right now, that means this is when you glean. There are times you're in a full full field of, of ready to harvest and, and everything's good, and man, I've got so much good in my life, it's just everywhere. Yeah, that's a that's a field ready for harvest, man. Get all the gratitude you can out of that. But there are times when it's empty. And those are the times Ruth is our example. Because I honestly think once we start gleaning, once we start once we get into that empty field and start looking for the good, that's when we find Boaz. That's when we find Jesus there with us. That when we, when we will take the time to hunt, there's this verse in the Old Testament that says, we enter into his gates with thanksgiving. Like that's the password. That's the password to get in is thank you. Thanksgiving. Gratitude. That's how we come. That's how we get into his presence is through gratitude. I think when we go into a field and we're willing to, to hunt, We don't just find barley. We don't just find the thing to be grateful for. We don't just find that, that food we were, we thought we were there for. We find so much more. We find our Savior. I think that's what Ruth is teaching us. If we'll take the time to glean, we find our Savior. So maybe this morning while we're, while we're gathering around the table, maybe start with five things I'm thankful for. Five things I'm grateful for. And then Ruth went and shared it with Naomi. That's an awesome story. She comes back with way more than Naomi thought she should have. And Naomi is like, holy cow, where did you get out? Because then Boaz starts like, once she starts gleaning and she's picking her own stuff, Boaz goes to his men and he's like, hey, throw a little extra off for Ruth. Like, Kick a few things off the wagon. You know, help her out. And and then they they meet one time and he just gives her a bag of grain just sends her home with a bag of grain and Naomi is like what is happening where on earth are you gleaning from why is there so much good going on for you and that's when Ruth goes I met this guy I met this guy named Jesus for her it's Boaz but she's like I met this guy and he's been taking care of me and I think that's what happens to us yeah it looks like an empty field. It looks like it's already been picked over. But once we do the work, once we decide to be grateful, once we find five things that I am crazy grateful for, we start noticing that Jesus kicks a little more off the wagon. And He kicks a little more off the wagon. And once we'll once we'll get in the field and start digging, we find that He's taking care of us and He's giving us more and He's giving us more and He's giving us more.